We're, uh, we're continuing our series in Jonah, uh, the mystery of God's grace. And I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I grew up in the church. My parents uh, made me go to church from a very young age. And so I was very aware that God was there, um, but I didn't feel like God was doing enough for me. And so I remember as a kid being, uh, you know, going to bed in my room and the lights being out and me being, doing things like this, like, God, please give me millions of dollars. When I wake up tomorrow morning, I want millions of dollars on the floor of my room. And I promise, God, if you give me millions of dollars, I will do some good stuff for you. I will make sure that some of it gets used, a lot of it maybe, to help you out, to do stuff that you're interested in. And the funniest thing, though, it never, it never worked. I never, I never woke up uh, with millions of dollars on the floor, and I still don't have millions of dollars. Um, and I, and, I'm, and, and I, I think that many of us have probably been in situations similar to that, maybe not as ridiculous as that, but where we're like, how do we make this work, right? How do we get God to do what we want? God's supposedly so gracious, right? And grace is, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's gifts that you don't deserve, right? I knew I didn't deserve millions of dollars, but I figured that would be a good way for God to show his grace to me. How can I get God to show his grace to me in a way that I want? And we're going to see that um, actually there is kind of a mechanic to grace. There's a mechanic, a kind of deep, hidden logic to how grace works. We're going to see it in Jonah. We're going to see it in the New Testament today. And hopefully it will give us an opportunity to think about how we can be a part of God's gracious gift to the world. And maybe even understand how God's imparting his gracious gifts to us. So uh, we're retreading a little bit, but let's look at uh, Jonah 1. Um, you'll recall that Jonah gets on the boat. He's running away from God. God's like, I want you to go here. He goes the opposite way. Uh, he gets on this boat, and then God is mad. And so God sends a horrible storm, and the boat's about to capsize. And the, and the, the, the sailors find out that it's all Jonah's fault. That if Jonah had just not gotten on this boat, they'd be fine. And so the, the men were terrified. They said to Jonah, what have you done? They knew that Jonah was fleeing from Yahweh because he had told them. And again, anytime you see capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, it's covering God's personal name, Yahweh. That's the name of God. Uh, So they said to him, what will we do about you so that the sea will become calm around us? Because the sea was continuing to rage. Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm around you. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. You'll recall, of course, that this is uh, tantamount to suicide. Jonah expects to die. He, um, he's, he expects them to kill him. He can't swim, and even if he could, there's no way he would get to land because they're very far out at sea. So the men, they're like, we don't want to do that. So they try to row to reach dry land, but they can't do it. Uh, the, the, the sea continues to push them about. And so they call on Yahweh. The first time they've ever called on Israel's God before. They have never heard of this God. They don't know anything about him other than Jonah says that he created uh, the land and the sea. So presumably he has some power here. And they say, please, Yahweh, don't let us perish on account of this man's life. And don't blame us for innocent blood. You're Yahweh. Whatever you want, you can do. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased its raging. The men worshipped Yahweh with profound reverence. Remember we said last week, uh, terrified or with trembling awe is the Hebrew there. They offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and they swore their lives to him. Uh, They vowed their vows is the Hebrew. But Yahweh provided a large fish 
to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, the first thing to notice is there's a disconnect between what the sailors know and what they say. Okay, they know. Jonah's told them, I defied my God. I, Yahweh told me to go and do this thing. I didn't want to do it, and so I ran to your boat, and I'm running away. And, and they know that. He's told them that. And so they know Jonah's a bad guy. They know that he has disobeyed his God. And so when they hear him say, hey, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, they're probably thinking, that's a great idea. We do want to kill this guy because he's endangering all of us. So that's what kind of what's going on in their head. But then look at what they say to God. Okay, this is what they say to God. They say, oh, Yahweh, please don't let us perish on account of this man's life. Don't, don't blame us for innocent blood. There's a disconnect there. They know that blood's not innocent. They know that uh, they're not going to perish on account of his life. They know that he should be executed. If there's anything they should be saying, they're like, God, you're welcome. We're going to kill this guy for you because he deserves it. They don't. And then when God does what they ask, not, you know, hurting them after they kill Jonah, they worship Yahweh and they swear their lives to him. In a sense, uh, the sailors are doing kind of what I did as a kid. Like, in their hearts, they have something else going on. In their hearts, they're probably pretty mad at Jonah. They're probably pretty angry that he's endangering their lives. Um, and when they find out about it, they're probably pretty happy that he's going to die. But that's not what they say. They, they, when, they, when they pray to God, they have, they have a different, different words come on their lips. They're like, God, we, we really feel bad about this. He's a great guy, and we are so sorry that this has to happen. Now, the reason for that is uh, because, like me as a child, ancient peoples, they, they didn't know that God could, like, search inside their— they didn't know that Yahweh could search inside their hearts and find out what they're thinking. They didn't know that God knows everything and that he could go in there and, like, peer inside and be like— but God knows exactly what they're thinking, but God doesn't seem to be too upset that there's sort of— there's a disconnect there. And one thing that teaches us is that our prayers are, are supposed to be kind of like— we're supposed to be kind of like lawyers— Right? We got Tom Cruise here from, uh, from Few Good Men, right? Uh, at the prime of his life, although he hasn't aged. He's got a really good plastic surgeon. Looks exactly the same today. And I think he's like 56. So it will catch up to him, but so far, no. Um, he, a, lawyer, a lawyer's job is to say stuff to convince the judge or the jury, even if they don't believe it at all. Right? That's what a lawyer does. That's why you pay a lawyer. The lawyer's like, this guy's guilty of sin, but I'm going I'm to do my darndest to convince the judge to, to help him out, to convince the jury to acquit him. Similarly, when we approach God, God doesn't seem to be upset if there's a mismatch between what we're saying to God and what's going on in our hearts. God seems to understand that we as human beings are, you know, we kind of want stuff for ourselves. And so even though I'm like, God, God, I need a million dollars, God gets that I'm not really out to help God out. God knows what's going on in my heart. But I think there's a sense in Scripture that God would prefer that I at least talk to him, even if I'm not 100% on board with his plans. And uh, that's the first thing you're noticing. It's okay to pray when your words and your heart don't match. We, I, I yeah, I, I think that because God is gracious, God, God would rather have you pray and be trying to manipulate him and trying to work around him. He would rather have you talk to him and be disingenuous 
than not talk at all. And that's a big thing. I, I, you know, I, it, I think that in the United States of America right now, I, I think there's a massive prayer deficit. And I'm just as guilty as anybody else. I think that we are in a, in a, in a place in the world and in, in time where people really aren't praying that much. Because we know that the real way to get power is to, you know, vote. Or the real way to get power is to join, you know, this, um, this movement or, or this group or this government entity. That's how power is really distributed. And we kind of assume that. And so we, we just, oh, well, why, why bother with the prayers? And even if we did pray, we'd kind of be like, hey, God, could you help us out? But secretly we know that God really can't. And that really it's, it's about us doing this out of the other thing. Which brings up a question. Do you pray? And maybe it's because you don't feel like it. Maybe you don't believe it works. Maybe. But if God's real, I guarantee you God would rather have you talk to him, even off the cuff, even dishonestly, than not at all. And so these sailors, they're trying to manipulate God. They're trying to get God to help them out. God does help them out, not because they asked him so nicely, but because God has other things going on. Uh, look, at, look at this text here. It's going to show us exactly how God's grace kind of works, the general way that grace works. Uh, they picked up Jonah. They hurled him into the sea. The sea immediately ceases. It's raging. The men worship Yahweh. They swear their lives to him. And it goes on to say what? The Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Well, if you're a Christian or you're at all familiar with, you know, the Bible or Jesus or anything, when you hear three days and three nights, you might be thinking, I know somebody else who went down for three days and three nights, more or less. And indeed, Jesus himself brings this up in the New Testament. Let's look at Matthew 12. Jesus, uh, some scribes, Pharisees, these are religious leaders, elitists. Um, they thought that they had it all figured out. And they said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They're not sure that Jesus is the real deal, but they're willing to give him a chance because they're nice. And so they say, you know, do some of your magic. Do a magic trick for us. Show us a sign. And then maybe we'll listen to what you have to say. Jesus answers, he says, uh, an evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Notice what's happening here in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things. Pull back for a second. Jonah tells the sailors, toss me overboard. They do. As soon as they kill Jonah, they get saved. And not just saved in the sense that the sea stops raging. They become, they've become Yahweh followers, God followers, God fearers because of this death. Now Jonah doesn't actually die, of course. He gets swallowed up by a big fish. You're wondering why that happens. Well, it's because God needs some way to get Jonah from the middle of the ocean to the, the land. He's like a... There wasn't a whole bunch of ships around, so he just... Use fish as a transport service. It's like a taxi, Uber. It's like God's Uber in the in the in in, in the deep. 
Uh, but Jonah's death leads to life for many. And not just these sailors, but also who else? Jonah eventually, he gets spat up on the land. He's like, oh, fine. So he goes and he does what God asks. And he ends up causing a whole bunch of people to be saved, to, be, to repent and to be protected and rescued. Jonah dies. A whole bunch of people live. The exact same thing happens with Jesus. Jesus, one man dies. He goes down into the earth. Jonah goes in the belly of the fish. Jesus goes down into the grave. And and then what happens? A whole bunch of people are given life. A whole world is saved by faith. All right, Californians, what what are we always talking about? Big fish, tax. Taxes is close. We do talk a lot about that. What are, we're always talking about the same thing. Every, every conversation I have with every one of you is the same conversation. Recall Newsome. <laughs> Great, solid. Uh, we, we love you, Gavin. Thank you for allowing us, the uh, Supreme Court, for allowing us to stay here. What's that? Wet, weather, good, close. Traffic. Yeah. No, no, come on. Every COVID. Yeah. No, we're always saying the same thing. We're like, when are we going to leave this state? That's the that's the question. That's the that I have a conversation. No matter who I talk to, it's like, so you think about moving out of California? You bet I am. And then what do we? What do we? Then immediately the next point is, okay, so when you when you pull the trigger, when you leave, where are you going to go? And it's like, well, Las, okay, Las Vegas, good. That's one place to go. But every single person says exactly the same thing. They say, well, what I really want is I want the same weather, but just a different state. And so then it's like, okay, well, well, that's impossible. So let's let's come up with uh, you know the, the the closest that we can get. So a lot of popular ones um, that I hear: North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, Idaho, which I don't get, but Texas. Yeah, Texas is huge. Um, where else do people move? Arizona. It's like it's like no matter where you go, it's better than here. But then there's a problem. There's a problem because nowhere has the same. Weather that we've got. Because in California, we have summer, we have light summer, followed by regular summer, followed by super summer for three months. And then we have, like, cool summer. That's kind of our climate. And so the the real, the the gutsiest amongst you, the gutsiest, you, you say this to me, you say, I'm tired, I'm tired of this weather. I want to see seasons. Like, oh, okay. You go. <laughs> Have fun. Seasons are great. <laughs> I've lived in seasons. I know how bad they are. Everyone loves the first day of winter. You hate all the rest of the days of winter. Everyone loves the first day of summer. You hate all the rest of the days of summer. I tell, I'm telling you, seasons are the worst. But I've lived in them, and those of you who don't know because you've never left the state, this is kind of what it looks like. Uh, this is, there's, there's snow in the winter, and that's when everything dies. Okay, everything dies. Uh, the animals die if they don't have enough, you know, squirrels saving their nuts or whatever squirrels do. They die, um, and then and plants die because they don't see the sun and they're smashed by the ice and the snow. Um, oh, speaking of which, another plug for Minnesota. I was there uh, last week, and they, the people are delightful. And yes, it was negative eighteen degrees, but but. But they've figured it out, dude. They build houses like you wouldn't believe. You, you're, it's negative 18. You walk inside immediately, 70 degrees. Perfect. So if you, that's, add that to your list of places that you want to move. Uh, Minneapolis is awesome. 
Anyway, uh, so the, everything dies in the winter. Everything is killed. And, and interestingly, the way that uh, nature works is apparently that death actually prepares for a bountiful spring. Again, we don't know this because we steal all of our water from, like, Colorado or something, uh, even though there's an ocean right next to us, but whatever. Um, and so we don't, we, we don't understand how the, uh, the winter actually killing things off creates better conditions for new life to spring up in, in spring. And then that life that springs up in spring comes to fruition in, in summer, and then in summer uh, all the, the, the oranges grow or, I mean, is that what happens in summer? Like, I guess, like, there's hay, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is that grows in other places. It grows during the summer. And then in the fall, you harvest it. And this is very important because harvesting that, that, uh, the growth of the summer helps you to survive through the death of the winter, right? That's like how nature works. That's biology 101. You're welcome. Um, do you notice? Do you notice that in that cycle... The death is what leads to the life. The life doesn't happen without the death. If you don't have all those, you know, things die, there's no space for new things to thrive. And it's a question. We don't know. Maybe God designed the universe this way. Um, Some people think that God designed it so that there would be seasons and death um, that that's not a result of human sin and destruction. Other people think that, uh, no, that everything was, there was no death at all, any pain whatsoever, and then human sin causes something like this. But either way, the, the, the world that we live in now is structured in this fashion. You go down into the depths for three months, and then that leads to nine months of life and vitality. Jonah has to go down in the belly of the fish that the sailors and the Ninevites might live. Jesus goes down into the grave so that all of humanity might have eternal life. It turns out that grace always costs somebody something. Just not me. The sailors, the Ninevites, the whole world, we all receive grace and life, and it doesn't cost us. It's free to us, but it costs somebody. And I suggest to you that this is the pattern not only of Scripture all the way through, but also the pattern that we see in our lives, the way that the world is structured in its very core. It's the next thing in your note sheets. Uh, the mechanic of grace is the death of one leading to the life of many. Now, of course, death there is symbolic. It doesn't always mean literal death. Jonah, he, remember, he was dropping into the Uber, the sea Uber. Okay? He didn't die, although the ocean was symbolic of death, and so everyone expected him to die, including himself. But that, so death doesn't have to be literal death, but it can be, it can be uh, pain, suffering. It can be deprivation. It can be... Confusion, loss. But the mechanic seems to remain. Death, deprivation, suffering, hurt, loss for somebody. And life to everyone else. And that should bring up a question for us. Yeah, Jesus died for you, to give you life. 
But has anyone else done something similar? Because the implication is, is that whatever grace you have in your life, whatever, you know, unmerited, undeserved favors that come, somebody paid for them. We don't like that as Americans, uh, whether you're a capitalist or a socialist. Capitalists say um, that, well, it's cool because everyone's free to enter into contracts and, and do business together, and everybody wins as a result, right? All it is is just that it's like people just keep winning more and more and more and more and more, all these deals that we're making, and, and everyone's making money, everyone's better off because of capitalism. That's uh, the capitalist notion that, no, no, no one's suffering, no one's, there's no cost. It's just, it's just everybody wins all the time. Socialism is very similar, right? It's like, uh, hey... You know, we need to, Tom's got a bunch of college debt. <laughs> Print some money, give it to him. Spread it out. There's plenty to go around. That's what they say. There's plenty and plenty of money. We do 1.9 trillion stimulus. Next we're going to have Green New Deal. Like, it, there's, there's more than enough. Everybody wins. And so Westerners, Americans, whether you're right or left, we all kind of have an ideology. We want to we wanna believe that that, no, that, that all of this liberty and all of it's not being paid in someone else's blood. But it was. You should thank them. Okay, so what does this mean? Let's just suppose it's true. Suppose that the way grace works, the way God structured the universe, structured his, 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 his giving of grace to us, is, is that somebody, somebody symbolically in some way suffers, dies, whatever, and that leads to life. Let's assume that's true. Okay, what notice? Notice what uh, the purpose of this is. Let's go back to, to Matthew for a second. Look at this. Um, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Okay? The, the, these Pharisees and these scribes, they were just like us. They were judgmental, vicious people. And they want, they, they, they're the best. They know that they're the best in their hearts. And everyone else is the worst. And so they say, okay, well, maybe we'll listen to you if you show us a magic, magic trick. And Jesus says, no trick are you going to get. There's going to be one trick. And it's going to be the same thing we saw in Jonah. I'm, I'm going to go down into the grave just as Jonah went down into the belly of the fish. That's the sign that you get. This is sharing the gospel, right? This is, this is mission. This is evangelism. This is, what it, this, is going to be, this is going to be the sign to show you what God's like, show you what's great, what grace is like, and give you an opportunity to respond. If you uh, were alive between 2005 and 2012, somebody in your life probably tried to force you to read one of these books or watch one of these movies. It was a dark time in our nation's history. People say 2020 was bad. No. Stephanie Meyer's writing is bad. And Robert Pattinson's acting is bad, and so is Kristen Sears. Man, Twilight, did you know that Twilight, uh, they've sold, uh, that Stephanie Meyer has sold over 100 million books? Get this, in English-speaking countries. That doesn't even count all the ones that, you know, like, they translate it. Uh, not only that, the, the, there's a four-part, four, four movies were made out of these books, uh, and, and they, they grossed worldwide $3.3 billion dollars. If you don't know the story, consider yourself lucky. I'm going to ruin it for you. It's a story of vampires and werewolves. Edward Cullen, a 107-year-old vampire, 
uh, who doesn't eat humans, he's a vegetarian vampire, he only kills deer and sucks their blood, falls in, he's trapped in the body of a 17-year-old boy, he falls in love with Bella Swan, the beautiful and cold, uh, resistant, depressed, anxious um, girl, you know, in his high school classroom. Along the way, Native American Jacob Blake, uh, part of the Quillette tribe, they all live in the Seattle area, he also falls in love with Bella and finds to his dismay that he, uh, like many of his tribe, can transform into a werewolf. And so he, he is a werewolf that's in love with Bella. Edward is a vampire that's in love with Bella. Stephanie Meyer netted $125 million for this nonsense. She is in the same category as people like Stephen King when it comes to richest authors in the world. The Twilight Saga is undeniably garbage. Even the people like it, who like it admit that it's stupid. How in the world did 100 million books get sold? 3.3 billion dollars at the box office. Well, I did the hard work so you don't have to. I've read all the books and I've watched all the movies. And as somebody who hated every second of it, I can objectively explain to you why they were so... And here's what it is. Here's what it is. This is a true fact. I'm not... This is fact. This fact. What's going on is these characters, Edward and Jacob, the vampire and the werewolf, they have this, like, almost unhealthy, sick obsession with Bella. They, their entire lives, literally every part of their life, revolves around her, keeping her safe, protecting her, Making sure that she gets what she needs and wants. In fact, as you read the books, you realize that the, the plot points of every single part of the book and all the movies is this. It's a constant uh, m- moment where Edward or Jacob or both have to give something up in order to keep Bella safe and protected and happy and secure. It might be their physical harm. In, in several cases, Jacob and, and Edward uh, get damaged physically uh, as they're trying to protect Bella. Uh, often it's their relationships. They have to break away from other members of their family or whomever. They have to reject their, uh, their, their social environment in order to keep Bella safe to love her. At one point, Jacob, like, by the way, Bella is always depressed. Like, <laughs> It's like she's got two guys who are absolutely obsessed with her. They both have superpowers, and she's miserable the whole time. <laughs> I don't know how you guys read that. All right. Anyway, so at one point, because she's depressed, like she's doing, like she's like going dangerous motorcycle rides and all this, and and Jacob gives up everything in his life. He stops going to school, stops hanging out with all. This. All he does is he sits there and watches watches Bella without her knowing, so that if she like turns off, he'll be there to save her. For most people um, in the West, and really people in the world, the Twilight Saga was the first time they encountered something like true self-sacrificial love. Because they've been away from church, or maybe their church doesn't preach um, the way that, that, that Jesus actually loves us, they, they, they've, never, they've, never, they've never encountered a story where somebody, in this case two people, are willing to give everything up out of love for someone else. 
Because in our world, like I said, capitalism, socialism, everyone believes no one has to give anything up. You're going to have it all. But there's something cheap about that. There's something, there's something you suspect about that. There's something unreal about that. And here in Twilight, we have a story where, where the one, or in this case the two, they constantly give their lives over and over and over and over that the other might have life. And I believe, uh, incidentally, Stephanie Meyer is uh, she's uh, Mormon, um, and so while we disagree uh, with some fundamental things about uh, what she believes, she's a practicing Mormon, and she does have a very high regard for the love of Christ. And she built that into her book, books. And it comes out as kind of a weird, twisted, it's like, you know, young adult, I, I don't totally get it. But I see where she's coming from, and I understand why that is so attractive to the world we live in. Because every single one of us, deep down, wants that love. And honestly, we would like to be a part of that love. There's, if Edward and Jacob hadn't been so femme, I could imagine wanting to be like them, Right? Like, to be so, like, to, to be truly self-divesting, to be like Jonah, throw me overboard, like Jesus, send me to the cross, that the many might have life. <laughs> it was a good moment, man. Yeah, I like that. And that's the next thing in your note sheets. Self-sacrificial love is still the greatest sign of God's grace. If you're a part of an evil and adulterous generation, there's no magic trick. There's no, that, that's not going to convince people to follow Jesus. That's not, that, no, no, what's going to convince people that Jesus is real, that Jesus is the truth, is going to be self-sacrificial love. It's where you give it up and you cause someone else to have life. And that brings up a question. Are there people, especially people who don't believe in Jesus, maybe alienated from church, alienated from faith, whatever, but they might, if there might be some way that you can show them that you, it's more important to you for them to have life than for you to have whatever. And if you can identify those people, that group, that whatever, what's stopping you? What's stopping us from taking that step and saying, I'm going to let this go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show that, that my feeling great about whatever isn't as important as them receiving gospel life. For the last uh, year, we're coming up on the year anniversary of our uh, first lockdown. Um, I think it's March 20-something. You, you know, Mike? I think March 15th. March 15th, okay. Maybe March 15th. Uh, so we're, we're, we're well over 11 months into uh, the, the COVID universe. Um, what's been beamed into our eyes on social media, um, on, in the news, and all of those things looks something like this. And it's been all year. This is in France. Um, the, French are, the French people are very upset about the COVID lockdowns, and they've been rioting to try and open things back up. Um, but something similar has happened here. Uh, there's been 
images of, of unrest and deep uh, confusion and sorrow over um, issues of race, over you know, issues of safety, over issues of all the... Where, wherever you look, there, there, there's this constant, you know, the, 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 the photo lens is always on some fire being started or some person being pepper sprayed or whatever it is. It, but it, it's a constant, unending stream of images of people in desperate unrest, in, in, in divided. And we can't beat that. You can't, you can't beat that. You can't, the, there's, there's too many photos, there's too many cameras. Uh, that's just going to keep getting beamed into our eyes probably forever because it generates money for the people who do it. But how much of it, and you can't argue, right? You can't argue whether someone's on the right or the left. Um, you can't argue with them about, about COVID, about um, Black Lives Matter, about the Capitol insurrection, whatever. You can't argue. Everyone's got their opinion. And no one's going to be argued out of it. But maybe, maybe an act of self-giving, self-sacrificial love, a picking up of your cross in a way that would impact them, maybe that might start to break the barriers that are dividing us. Instead of these images, an image instead of a personal experience of the Lord Jesus carrying his cross, personified, made real, manifested in something that we do as a community, as individuals, for the people around us. Imagine what the world might be like if people's eyes were taken off of screens and onto visible, real signs, the sign of Jonah, the sign of Christ, the sign of self-sacrificial love that testifies to a gracious, giving God who knows and experiences and has himself given the life of one for the life of many. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we, um, we thank you for the, the story of Jonah. We thank you for the life of Christ. We thank you for your grace, which is so wild and unexpected. The way that it allows the life of one to purchase and restore the life of many. And God, we ask uh, you, Holy Spirit, to come in this place and make us self-sacrificial lovers, willing to lay down uh, the things in our lives that we cherish to to be a vision, a, a visible example of the reality of your son, the reality of redemption, the reality of life. May Coast Bible Church and everyone here be assigned to an evil and adulterous generation that your grace is here to stay and will win. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.